I find your offending to be extremely serious. It is an outrage to our democracy. And when you look at some of these terrorism offences, the mental elements are so complex and the physical elements are so multi-layered so that charging them and proving all of that beyond reasonable doubt is incredibly complex. Motivated by hatred, intolerance, malevolence and misguided piety, the three of you went by cover of night into a place of religious worship in a suburb of Melbourne intent on destroying it by fire. This episode of Gertie's Law is about one of the most serious and high-profile offences which comes before the Victorian Supreme Court. Terrorism. Terrorism trials are usually long, as are the resulting sentences, and they attract a lot of public interest. The day of a sentence, there will be numerous TV cameras, lights and journos setting up outside the gates to the laneway where the prison vans come in. News cameras have about a second with a long lens to get shots of the accused being escorted from the van to the court building. Inside the courtroom, the public galleries and press seats will be full. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. And they shall be heard. And they shall be heard. The whole truth. And nothing but the truth. Nothing, 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 nothing. Nothing but the truth. Terrorism cases are one, uh, a type of case that have really only started in the last five or ten years to come through in any significant numbers. Principal Judge of the Criminal Division, Justice Hollingworth. And whilst they're not a, an enormous number of cases, they tend to be very complicated. They often involve multiple parties. And they're often very time-consuming because there may be many thousands of hours of telephone intercepts or thousands of pages of internet searches or things of that sort. So they're actually a lot more complicated than a typical homicide uh, case. Terrorism laws are relatively new to Australia, but the types of crimes they're designed to capture are not. There was the 1978 Sydney Hilton Hotel bombing which targeted the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, killing three people and injuring 11. In 1980, the Turkish Consul General was shot and killed in Sydney for political reasons. In 2001, a security guard at a Melbourne abortion clinic was shot by an anti-abortionist. Some of these were not considered terrorism at the time, but were all politically or ideologically motivated a key ingredient for something to be considered a terrorist offence today. The attacks in America on September 11, 2001, changed the way we think about terrorism. The stakes were suddenly so much higher. Governments here and around the world reacted with stronger anti-terrorism legislation. In this episode of Gertie's Law, we're going to take a look at some of this legislation, find out how these laws are being handled in the Supreme Court, and what a judge has to consider when sentencing for these offences. So firstly, how did these laws come about? Um, my name's uh, Dr Nicola McGarrity. I'm a senior lecturer at the University of New South Wales in the Faculty of Law, and I'm also the director of the Terrorism Law Reform Project. Nicola also represented a man charged with terrorism offences in a landmark case here at the Supreme Court about a decade ago. More on that case later. If we go back to the September 11 attacks in the United States. At that point in time, Australia didn't actually have any anti-terrorism laws on its statute books at the federal level at all. 
the the only Australian jurisdiction that had any anti-terrorism laws was in fact the Northern Territory. However, immediately after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, the Australian Parliament very quickly came to the realisation that we needed specific anti-terrorism laws, that there was something unique about terrorism, whether it be the gravity of the harm that it causes, whether it be the political motivation that underpins it, or really whether it be simply the need to reassure the public that they were safe. So for whatever reason, the Australian Parliament decided that we needed to enact specific anti-terrorism laws. And what we saw in the six months after the September 11 terrorist attacks was a flurry of national security lawmaking. In March 2002, we had six pieces of national security legislation introduced into the Parliament, totaling hundreds of pages. And those laws which were introduced in 2002 still remain the sort of the basis, the foundation of Australia's anti-terrorism laws today. And authorities across the country weren't shy in using these new laws. We've got well over 100 people who have been charged with terrorism-related offences. And by terrorism-related offences, I include not only um, offences that include the terminology of terrorism, such as um, preparing for a terrorist act or membership of a terrorist organisation, but also offences to do with engagement in uh, hostile activities, so foreign incursions and recruitment offences. Although the conduct underlying a terrorist act was already criminalised, whether it be murder or arson or conspiring to murder, etc., these new terrorism laws were unique. Okay, Jessie Smith, I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge. Jessie specialises in comparative counter-terrorism um, law. So terrorism offences in Australia are special criminal offences in our code. Um, they're special because they have additional components of proof that offences such as murder, manslaughter, um, bomb making don't have. The two aspects that make it different are the need for the prosecution to prove that an offender intends to advance a political, religious or ideological cause. So that must be both pleaded and proved. The second is that the offender intended to coerce government or a section of the public. These offences we um, incorporated into our law following 9-11. Prior to this date, we focused on um, very ordinary criminal offences to deal with political violence. So what pushes a crime like murder or arson into the terrorist category? In moral theory, normally because it's targeted at an innocent person, so it's not a military-type operation. Dr Patrick Emerton is Associate Professor of Law at Monash University. And in law in Australia, because it's motivated by politics or religion and because it's intended to intimidate either a public or a government somewhere in the world. So it's that political rather than sort of private or interpersonal dimension in Australian law that makes it terrorism. Some of the offences, when you look at them, are are so complex as criminal offences. So uh, when sort of a first-year law student study criminal law, they learn that every crime has sort of a a mens rea, a mental element, and an actus rea is the the physical element. And when you look at some of these terrorism offences, the mental elements are so complex and the physical elements are so multi-layered and depend on other people having mental, uh, mental states of their own, for example. So that 
kind of charging them and proving all of that beyond reasonable doubt is incredibly complex. Also, these were Commonwealth laws made by the Federal Parliament. And according to our constitution, the Commonwealth legislature doesn't have the general power to enact criminal laws. That belongs to the states. It only has the power to enact legislation, including criminal laws, on topics that are bestowed on it under the Commonwealth Constitution. Terrorism is not one. But it does include matters based on international treaties and also matters that are referred to the Commonwealth by the states. This means, for terrorism issues, there's a need for more cooperation. Dr Nicola McGarrity again. There certainly has been a requirement of a lot of cooperation between the states and the federal jurisdictions, whether they be the Australian Federal Police and the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, and then the state and um, or territory police forces as well, and their respective uh, counter-terrorism units. So there has been a need because of the because of the border crossing the cross-jurisdictional nature of terrorism, the fact that it doesn't respect lines between countries, let alone the border between New South Wales and Victoria, there has been a need for a national approach to be taken. To ensure that the Commonwealth was able to enact national legislation for what was a national, if not global, issue of terrorism, what the states did was that they referred their ability to legislate on matters to do with terrorism to the Commonwealth. What this meant was that a national framework could be introduced. And following on from this, what the states have done to complement the federal terrorism laws is that they've tended to enact legislation that mirrors the fundamentals of the uh, Commonwealth legislation. So. All of the states and territories, for example, have the same definition of terrorism at the heart of their terrorism-related legislation. Broadly speaking, there are two major terrorism offences. A terrorist act, which is defined under the Commonwealth Criminal Code as an act or threat intended to advance a political, ideological or religious cause by coercing or intimidating an Australian or foreign government or the public. This action must cause serious harm to people or property, create a serious risk to the health and safety to the public, or seriously disrupt trade, critical infrastructure or electronic systems. And then there's preparatory offences. This means a person may be prosecuted not only for committing a terrorist act, but also for doing preliminary activities with this ultimate goal in mind. These preparatory offences even apply if a terrorism act does not occur. We'll be looking at preparatory terrorism offences in a lot more detail in the next episode. To illustrate the difference between a terrorist act and preparatory offences, take this event from 2015 in New South Wales. When 15-year-old Sydney sider Fahad Jabbar decided to kill a police officer, he first needed a weapon. He got that from Rabban Alou. That transaction was a preparatory offence and Alou was sentenced to 44 years. When Jabbar went on to shoot and kill police accountant Curtis Chang in Parramatta, he committed a terrorist act. Jabbar was killed by police at the scene. An important distinction to be made here too. When is an act which terrorises the public not a terrorist act? A recent example occurred in Melbourne. The attack on Bourke Street where a car was driven down a busy pedestrian mall on 20th of January 2017. In Europe, Nice, Stockholm and London, 
There's been similar incidents where people have driven vehicles into crowds, killing many. In Europe, these were labelled as terrorist acts. In Melbourne, the driver was found guilty of six counts of murder and 27 counts of recklessly endangering life. The resulting sentence was life with a non-parole period of 46 years, but terrorism charges were never laid. Jesse Smith. Here's a really great example because he used the violent tropes of the Islamic State in his attack. Query whether he would have killed as many people in that way had ISIS not been promoting the use of vehicles to run over pedestrians. Certainly he had nothing to do with ISIS. He was not in any way um, consumed or furthering that ideology, but he, he used that violent trope. And so in every other way, you had this spectacular public act of terrorism um, in, in that it instilled terror in the public, but it wasn't the advance of political, religious or ideological cause. Um, at the moment, we have two tiers of offenders and it might not make a, make a great deal of difference in sentencing, but I think it does make a great deal of difference in the public, um, a portion of blame, moral culpability, etc. For judges here at the Supreme Court, terrorism cases are unique. Terrorism trials too have their own special feature in this respect, that they are often based on surveillance. Justice Croucher, criminal judge here in the Supreme Court since 2013. Surveillance over not just five minutes or five hours or five days, but and not just five weeks, usually, it's usually months, even years in some cases. So there are usually reams and reams of, you know, pages um, which reflect transcript of um, conversations ranging from, you know, important things to the completely inane, because uh, you can imagine listening to someone's life for 12 months, well, there's going to be a lot of inane stuff there and, and people have to trawl, someone has to trawl through all this and work out what's relevant and what's not. And it takes a long time a lot of police hours um, and a lot of prosecution hours from the lawyer's point of view and a lot of defence hours to work out what is relevant in the end. So all of that takes a lot of managing. Yeah. Criminal judge, Justice Tinney. Let's say you've got a case where someone is charged with preparing for a terrorist act or even a completed terrorist act. The investigating authorities, they will often have been looking at the, the people as possible uh, people of concern in the community because they might have done some things that have shown their leanings in that direction, uh, that they might have become radicalised. So the uh, investigators would then take steps to obtain the telephone records, the social media usage records, all of those sorts of things of the, the person of interest. And they might have a lot of information about that before there's any arrest. And at the time of the arrest, the person might be in possession of a mobile phone and the mobile phone might have on it records of all of the sorts of images and files and audio files and documents and what have you that have ever been on that phone and every time that that person has made a contribution on social media on on Snapchat or on uh, whatever it is and the, the prosecution will sort through that and will be trying to isolate anything that shows the interest this person might have, let's say, in supporting an Islamic State or whatever it is. So there might be hundreds of thousands of documents and, and other files on that phone that need to be looked at and analysed. And then they might 
go to the person's house and the person might have a computer or two computers and they need to do the same thing there. And so by the time the case ends up uh, being prosecuted, there is this vast bulk of material which the Crown may be relying on in, in part, it'll only be part of the case, but the Crown will be relying on that to try to prove, in trying to prove that this person has carried out this terrorist act or the preparation for the terrorist act. And so there might be um, thousands and thousands of photographs and thousands and thousands of poems and other bits of text and what have you that might need to be looked at. Uh, and then got into a form that then that they can be placed before the jury. And in, in my experience, that's one thing that takes a lot of time. And then there's going to need to be uh, refining of that material. And then, of course, the, the defence may be arguing in respect of a particular photograph or a particular video file or whatever it is, that's not relevant, it doesn't prove anything, and it should be uh, excluded. And so there can be quite long pre-trial hearings to first of all to try to refine what there is and secondly to try to work out how much of that should actually be able to go before the jury. This partly explains why the pre-trial for these cases can go on for months. And so that in itself takes a long time and then putting the stuff before the jury also may take a long time because it may need to be read out, it may need to be played to the jury. Uh, in the case of individual photographs they'll need to be shown to the jury in a um, either in a folder or, or usually nowadays on, on an iPad in the jury box. And so that can be quite a, uh, a laborious process as well. So, yeah, who are you? Yeah, okay. Hi, uh, my name is Nick Robinson. I'm a criminal barrister uh, QC who's done a lot of work for many years for the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions, including in prosecuting terrorist matters. Not many barristers know as much about prosecuting terrorism as Nick Robinson. Um, and I've been involved in terrorism trials for the Commonwealth since um, the first trial in Victoria. Um, so that's, I don't know, I think it's 12 or 15 years or whatever. There's extra hurdles for the prosecution to clear in order to get a terrorism offence over the line. Well, you have to prove two things. You have to prove that the person charged did something and you have to prove that the person who did the act intended to prepare for a terrorist act or intended to carry out a terrorist act. So you've got to both show their state of mind and their state of mind has to reflect in particular that they want to do what they're doing to advance an ideology religious or political or just an ideology, usually an extremist ideology, uh, and that in doing it they intend to intimidate the public or a section of the public or a government, and it can include a foreign government. So what sort of things do you have to, or do you use to, to prove that? Well, one of the, the very difficult things to prove in terrorism cases is the action was intended to advance an ideology. And the most common terrorism cases in Australia have been for um, extreme Islamic ideologies, and I'll just like ISIS, but there have also been extreme right-wing matters also. So you have to show, so the jury can be satisfied beyond reasonable doubt, that the person supports that ideology. And one way that happens is by showing that was something they spent a lot of time reading, talking about or watching. So the sort of thing that juries often hear is that um, there are many thousands of images on a phone, that um, there were videos, 
there are posts and chats, um, that there are um, social media conversations which extol, for example, ISIS or some other ideology like the extreme right wing. Does that make these trials, well, they tend to be long and complicated. Yes, there are a couple of things about that which make them different from lots of other trials. The first is, as prosecution and as the defence and as the judge, we're all concerned that some of the really horrific images and videos are not shown to the jury without being edited. So we often have to edit out terrible things Um, but let the jury know what it was. And it's common, for example, that images or videos of beheadings are edited so that the actual beheading's not shown, but the jury are told this was a beheading, the last part of the video's been blacked out, so that they can make sense of it. And that, that makes it pretty wearing on the jury also. One of the things that I think all involved in terrorism trials are very conscious of, that by which I mean judge and, and the lawyers, is that the jurors are selected at random as part of their duty to come in and decide these things. And ordinarily, most people would never go anywhere near reading or watching any of this sort of material that is a constant in the terrorism trials. So if someone is murdered, whatever the motivation, wouldn't it be easier in the case where someone is killed to simply prosecute for a murder? The maximum penalty is the same. PhD candidate at Cambridge University, Jessie Smith. Um, there would always be an option today for the prosecution to charge just ordinary offences or terrorism offences. The maximum penalties between murder and terrorism are no different. Although today I'd say there's an expectation in the public eye that they would use the label terrorism. Of course, that incorporates additional burdens on the prosecution and very much changes the complexion of evidence before the court. So that's always on the prosecutor's mind in terms of what direction they elect. Look, for a long time, both in Australia and in the UK, they just used the ordinary law. Um, And that's still the preferred method in many places around the world. I think now, especially post 9-11, terrorism um, in the public eye means something more serious than simply murder. Um, There is a public outrage that accompanies these particular acts and that has intensified with the Islamic State activity um, in Iraq and Syria. So I think there is, it's it's probably fueled by that sort of public call for this, you know, additionally punitive, additionally serious crime um, to be you know, affixed to that conduct. Crown Prosecutor Nick Robinson. The point of terrorism is, at least in my view, that it's aimed at upsetting, frightening, intimidating the public. It's not just um, an intention to murder someone because they've failed to pay for their drugs or you want to take their marketplace or there's some other personal grudge. It's aimed at the population and the government generally. Um, And for that reason, it's necessary to show the intent to influence or intimidate the public or the government. That's the really important part of it, and to advance some ideology or cause. Uh, I think one of the things that concerns the laying of the charge for the director of public prosecutions, or whoever might be advising whether they lay it or not, is... If it appears to be terrorism, then 
it should be charged as terrorism. Because it's a different crime. Yeah, it, it's a different crime. The, and the, the, the reason for the, the greater penalties, and it's not only in terrorism, the federal offences do have um, life imprisonment for certain narcotics and so on, but the reason it has the capacity for such a long sentence is because of the, at least in my opinion, the capacity to do great harm. The issue of whether or not to use terrorism laws to charge someone came up in New Zealand. New Zealand example, the Christchurch example, there was a reluctance to use terrorism. So um, in New Zealand, following the arrest and charge of Mr Tarrant, uh, there was a real resistance to use the Suppression of Terrorism Act, I think it's called. Following attacks on two mosques during Friday prayers in Christchurch on the 15th of March 2019, An Australian man was charged with 51 murders, 40 attempted murders and one charge under the Terrorism Suppression Act. He originally pleaded not guilty to all charges, but changed his plea to guilty on the 26th of March 2020 and thereby avoiding a trial. In August that year, Tarrant was sentenced to life without parole. Um, The reason for that is although since 9-11 the New Zealanders have had those special laws on their books, it has been far simpler to use the ordinary criminal law. There was no doubt resistance because of the complexity of the laws. So if you're using a legislative regime for the first time, that's always a bit dangerous. You know, there can always be upset in the higher courts. Matters can drag on. Um, And there was also no doubt a hesitation to use laws which require the pleading and proof of an ideological position, which means the accused uh, would be very much entitled to take the stand and broadcast um, the nature of his ideology, the nature of his motivations. Um, That sort of public platform is something that they experienced in Northern Ireland uh, during the troubles in the sort of 80s and 90s and to avoid that, they created special courts which focused very much on ordinary offences and just drilled down to the overt conduct and acts, they say, right away from ideology. And so when you have a terrorist act run to completion and the offender survives... They will be in court defending and speaking to that political project and that can be quite damaging to a society that's still grieving from what occurred. Ultimately, it's up to the prosecution to decide which way to go. Dr Nicola McGarrity. Really, a huge amount of discretion lies with with prosecutors to decide how particular conduct should be characterised, whether it it contains that sufficient level of danger, that sufficient level of threat to the Australian state that justifies it being prosecuted as terrorism. There's a sort of political judgment that goes into the decision whether to prosecute someone as a terrorist or as an ordinary criminal. The key reason, the key attraction of prosecuting someone for terrorism, I think, today is first and foremost that there are lengthier sentences, considerably lengthier sentences that attach to terrorism offences than those which attach to ordinary criminal offences. Two, there is sufficiently more scope for um, evidence of association of belief to be introduced for preparatory offences. And thirdly, because prosecuting someone under the terrorism offences and achieving a conviction can also 
after the trial and after even a sentence is served, create an opportunity for seeking uh, continuing detention orders and extended supervision orders if that person is still regarded as posing a threat to the community. Indeed, at the end of each sentence, for a terrorism offence, you will hear something along the lines of... Pursuant to section 105, capital A, point 23 of the code, I'm also required to warn that because of the nature of the offence of which he has been convicted, an application may be made uh, to this court under Division 105, capital A of the code, for a continuing detention order requiring him to be detained in a prison after the end of his sentence. Justice Croucher. Yes, there's this, it's an extraordinary power that the state has, when I say the state, the Commonwealth has, to apply to detain you further beyond a sentence. And it's not that uncommon now. We have that in, in some serious sex offences, some serious violent offences, and has been extended to terrorism, which of course is Commonwealth offending, although most states have their own terrorism laws as well. So it means that if they consider you dangerous still, they can put you on one of these orders, which uh, means that you're heavily monitored, basically. And obviously, the more risk you're seen to present, then the more likely an order like that will be made beyond your sentence, or at least applied for, and then a court would have to decide whether to grant it or not. Yeah. In June 2019, Justice Taylor sentenced Momena Shoma. Before I commence, Mr Morrissey, I am in accordance with uh, the practice that has been adopted on previous occasions. The small figure of Momena Shoma, just over five foot high, sat motionless in the dock, removed her face covering for the purposes of identification, and then replaced it. Would you please stand, Ms Shoma, and just raise your veil for me? Are you Momena Shoma? Thank you. You may uh, resume your covering and sit down. Mamina Shoma, you have pleaded guilty to intentionally engaging in a terrorist act. On 9 February 2018, some eight days after you had arrived in Australia on a student visa, you stabbed Roger Singarivellu in the neck with a knife you had brought with you to this country, intending to use it in a terrorist act. Your attack upon Mr Singarivellu was done with the intention of advancing a political, religious or ideological cause and with the intention of coercing or influencing by intimidation a government of this country or another or a part of this country or another and or intimidating the public or a section of the public. The maximum penalty for engaging in a terrorist act is life imprisonment. Mr Singaravelu always intended to remember 9 February 2018. It was to be the last... This was the first time in Australia that anyone had been sentenced for a completed terrorist act. He now remembers not a cherished milestone of his daughter's childhood, but being woken by you, kneeling beside him, 
stabbing him in the neck and yelling, Allah Akbar. The physical force of your attack was such that the knife became embedded in and fractured Mr. Singer-Ravello's spine. His terror for himself and his young child at that moment is beyond imagining. But you wanted precisely that and more. At the scene, you told police that you had come to Australia to carry out the attack because you were ordered to do so by the Caliph of the Islamic State and in response to Muslim people being bombed by Westerners. You expressed the hope that Mr. Singer-Ravelu would die. Your deeds and words and the intentions accompanying them are chilling. They have sent ripples of horror throughout the Australian community. But they do not make you a martyr. They do not make you a beacon of Islam. They do not guarantee you green wings to ascend to Jannah. They make you an undistinguished criminal. You should not mistake your passing notoriety for importance, nor equate it with achievement. It was very difficult. Um, Justice Taylor. Shoma, Ms. Shoma, was, um, came to Australia with the express and explicit purpose of committing a terrorist offence and um, carried that out within a number of days of arriving in Australia. At the same time, she was a very young woman um, and it was the first time that an Australian court had to sentence someone for a completed terrorist act. As it turned out, on the same day that I sentenced Ms Shoma, um, a New South Wales Supreme Court judge sentenced someone in New South Wales for a completed terrorist act as well. That was Um, Isis Khan, who was found guilty by a jury and jailed for 36 years with a non-parole period of 27 years following a stabbing attack in the Sydney suburb of Minto. Khan targeted his neighbour after seeing him wearing a T-shirt with a pro-American military logo. The neighbour suffered life-threatening injuries but survived. And the number of competing considerations that have to be synthesised um, is very difficult. And it is always very difficult sentencing someone to a large number of years in prison, let alone a young woman. What was it like then as a judge deciding on a sentence for something where there was no precedence? Um, it's a difficult task, um, Sentencing um, judges say generally is one of the most difficult things that they do. Shoma pleaded guilty, therefore there was no trial. I give your plea of guilty to this offence its proper weight. You indicated your intention to plead guilty prior to the committal hearing. Your early plea has utilitarian value. It has spared the witnesses, Mr Singer-Ravello in particular, the trauma of giving evidence at a trial. I also accept that you made full, frank and immediate admissions as to your behaviour and your motivations to police. But I do not accept, as was submitted on your behalf, that those admissions allow a finding that you have guarded prospects for rehabilitation. On the contrary, those admissions were made because you were proud of your actions, believing them to be those of a martyr. In any event, woman with no prior criminal history. It was submitted that you are naive, You are young. In some cases, those matters would be significant sentencing considerations. But even if you had been much younger than you are, 
your age and antecedents are of reduced significance due to the seriousness of your offending and the primacy of denunciation, just punishment, protection of the community and deterrence as sentencing factors for terrorism offences. You have displayed no contrition for your offending. Indeed, the only regret you have uttered is that you did not succeed in taking Mr. Singaravello's life. That sentiment is despicable. There is no evidence that you have renounced or are close to renouncing the beliefs that led you to commit this offence. On the contrary, you are defiant. It follows that your chances of rehabilitation are poor. If not for the terrorism charge, this offence would have attracted a much lighter sentence. Indeed, the maximum penalty for attempted murder is 25 years. Offences. Mamina Shoma, please stand. I note that you do not. Balancing as best I am able the competing considerations laid down in the Crimes Act and having regard to the matters I have just discussed, for the offence of intentionally engaging in a terrorist act, I sentence you to 42 years imprisonment. I am required by section 19AG of the Crimes Act to set a non-parole period of not less than three quarters of the length of the head sentence. I fix a non-parole period of 31 years and six months. I am required by section 105A.23 of the Criminal Code to warn you that an application may be made under vision 105A of the Code for a continuing detention order requiring you to be detained in a prison after the end of your sentence for this offence. Please have Ms Shoma removed. Adjourn the court. Less than two months later, three men were sentenced for another completed terrorist act. This case involved the burning down of a Shia mosque. At the heart of this case was whether or not this was an act of advocacy, protest or dissent, resulting in arson or an act of terrorism. They were found guilty of engaging in and attempting to engage in a terrorist act. Criminal Judge Justice Tinney heard the case. Ahmed Mohammed Abdullah Chirani and Hatim Makaiba. Early in the morning of 11 December 2016, motivated by hatred, intolerance, malevolence and misguided piety, the three of you went by cover of night into a place of religious worship in a suburb of Melbourne, intent on destroying it by fire. This is Justice Tinney delivering his sentence on the 24th of July 2019. Great satisfaction from the outcome. The crime you committed on that morning was motivated by a strong belief in extreme views which have no place in this or in any civilised society. That was a case where some men who were Sunni Muslims burnt down a Shia Muslim mosque. So a, a lot of the conflict in the, in the world in, where Islam is concerned has been between Sunni and Shia or Shiite Muslims. And the teachings of Islamic State have been that whilst... Western people who are not Muslim, uh, whilst they are an object of uh, criticism and attack, so too are some other Muslims who, who don't fit in with the 
views of the, the Sunni people who uh, follow Islamic State. And so in this case, it was a, there was a mosque in northern Melbourne which was set alight by these guys and they then scrawled on the wall uh, Islamic State. So they, they identified that um, the, the cause in, in, uh, in support of which they had burnt down the mosque or the prayer centre was Islamic State. And it was a, an attack, sort of a hate crime really, against Shia Muslims. So that's what that one was about. Your particular purposes were to advance what to most sensible people can only be seen as being a perverse ideology and more particularly to strike a blow against and to intimidate and cause terror to Shia Muslims. Stated thus, your crime was a heinous one. However, there is more to it than that. What you did reflected an attack upon a fundamental value in our society, namely religious freedom, an attack upon the conventions and beliefs that all Australians hold dear, and indeed an attack upon this society itself, a society under whose protection and sharing whose benefits you have lived throughout your lives in Australia. Looked at rationally, your crime is very difficult to understand and quite impossible to excuse. You have all been found guilty by a jury of offences connected with terrorist attacks upon the Imam Ali Islamic Centre, which I will refer to as the mosque uh, throughout this sentence, a Shia Islamic community prayer and religious centre located... The fire was started in the middle of the night, when the mosque was empty, and there was no evidence of an attempt to physically hurt anybody. So during the trial, the accused tried to have the offence considered as arson. Well, in that case, the, um, in the case of arson, the elements are completely different from what the elements of this crime were. And in fact, one of the accused in that trial was saying, look, I am guilty of burning down this place and I am guilty of arson, but I'm not guilty of the terrorist act because you can't prove that uh, you know, the, all of the elements of the terrorist crime are made out. Look, the, the fact is the elements are completely different and the elements, the terrorist crimes are Commonwealth crimes and the, the, the law is entirely different. And, of course, uh, a lot of terrorist acts would subsume other state offences as well. For example, if you, if you went and, in a terrorist act, went and uh, shot someone in Fed Square or wherever it was and killed them, well, that would be a terrorist act. Uh, it would also be murder, and indeed whether it would be prosecuted as a terrorist act or as murder would be up to the authorities to sort out. But it's a completely different scheme, mental elements that, that, that are different that have to be proved. Uh, in the case of a terrorist act, it needs to be something that's done to further a particular cause. It could be a religious or a political or ideological cause. Uh, a normal state crime, such as a murder, it doesn't need to be carried out for, for any particular cause, it just has to be carried out with a particular intention. QC, in his defence response on your behalf, told the jury that there was only one issue between you and the prosecution. It was whether or not you, your admitted involvement in the attempted destruction and then the successful destruction of the mosque were terrorist acts. Justice Tinney again delivering his sentence. On both occasions, that you were the person who spray painted the graffiti on the mosque on 11 December 2016, that your acts were done with the intention of advancing the cause of Sunni Islam, and that the acts were done with the intention of intimidating Shia Muslims. The element in dispute, as it was put by your counsel, was whether or not your actions were carried out as advocacy, protest or dissent. On your behalf, it was acknowledged that your actions amounted to the serious criminal offences of attempted arson and arson, but it was asserted that they were not terrorist acts.
Later in the trial, in an application eventually joined in by counsel for the other two accused, sought to have the crime of arson, crimes of arson and attempted arson left as alternatives to the terrorism offences. For reasons which I announced briefly in court, I declined to do so. Defence counsel did try and lower the offence from terrorism to protest, advocacy and dissent, and also described the arson and attempted arson, which the accused had admitted to, as awful, terrible, most serious and despicable hate crimes and a serious example of arson. But this argument was unsuccessful. For what it is worth, your defence, Chirani, was optimistic, verging on the entirely fanciful. For it to be asserted on your behalf that your admitted conduct could have been no more than advocacy, protest or dissent was wholly unrealistic. You were party to the intentional destruction by fire of a large building in a suburban area which had the status of a place of worship. In my view, no sensible person would countenance the idea that your conduct could possibly fit within the meaning of the words advocacy, protest or dissent. It is hardly surprising your defence which the circumstances indicate must have been decided upon by you very close to the time it was advanced on your behalf was rejected by the jury. Having this is an important distinction and had major implications for the final sentence. Justice Tinney. Well, the maximum penalty for arson is uh, 15 years, and uh, that's one thing, and the maximum penalty for the offence I was considering is life imprisonment. And the reality is that when I came to sentence in that case, I was sentencing for the terrorist act, a completed terrorist act. So when I was looking at other comparable cases or other authorities, sentencing authorities to look at, the ones I'm looking at are cases where long terms of imprisonment have been imposed for terrorist crimes, completed terrorist crimes, of which fortunately there have not been too many in Australia. But the sentences uh, in Australia, particularly in New South Wales and Queensland, for preparatory terrorist acts are very long. Most, the, many of the sentences well into the 20 years. Whereas if I was sentencing um, those people for arson, the maximum penalty is 15 years and uh, sentences of seven or eight or nine years would be not at all unusual for that sort of offending. So really it was a case where the, that the crime of which the accused were found guilty uh, dictated that the maximum penalty is much higher and that the sentence would necessarily have to be significantly higher than if it was charged as arson. Will the uh, three accused please stand. Ahmed Mohammed and Abdullah Chirani on charge one, the offence of attempting to engage in a terrorist act. You are each sentenced to be imprisoned for a period of eight years. On charge two, the offence of engaging in a terrorist act, you are each sentenced to be imprisoned for a period of 18 years. The sentence on charge two is the base sentence. I order that four years of the sentence on charge one is to be served cumulatively upon the sentence on charge two. The total effective sentence for each of you is therefore a sentence of imprisonment for 22 years. I fix a non-parole period of 17 years. Pursuant to section 18 of the Leave to appeal conviction for all three was granted, but these appeals were dismissed by the Victorian Court of Appeal in April 2020. Then, on 16th of October, Abdullah Chirani and Hatim Makaiba attempted to go to the High Court. After a short deliberation, just four minutes, Justice Edelman and Justice Nettle had their decision. Here's an actor reading the words of Justice Nettle from the court transcript. 
The court is not persuaded that appeals to this court would enjoy sufficient prospects of success to warrant a grant of special leave. The applications are dismissed. Links to the full sentences of cases discussed in this episode can be found on the Gertie's Law website or in the episode description on your podcast app. Fortunately, cases here for completed terrorist acts are rare. Next episode of Gertie's Law will look at the type of terrorism offences which are more common and arguably more complex, that is, preparatory offences. These cases raise a whole range of questions around when's the best time for the law to intervene. I think there are still discussions to be had about at what point we criminalise what might be called preparatory offences. If you're too soon on the trajectory of behaviour, then that idea of thought crime comes into existence. Often, there's been no murder, but they intended there to be one, and something might have fortunately prevented it. So it's the intent that really gets punished. And what if those plans had no real chance of being realised? Further, there is no evidence of any starting point or timeline for the commencement of the encouragement of others to overthrow the government. Thus, the ultimate aim of the plan was extremely remote. Gertie's Law is brought to you by the Supreme Court of Victoria. Please subscribe and leave a comment if your podcast app allows. We love getting your feedback and it helps others to find this podcast. And like last season, we'll be doing another episode where judges answer your questions. So if this episode has prompted a question you'd like to ask a judge, then send them in. Send in questions as text or audio to gertie at supcourt.vic.gov.au.